This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Oh, yes, it is. Hello. How are you this afternoon? On the Country Hour today, there are calls to change the way wheat varieties are classified and also to get them more in tune with what our customers actually want. And what might be next on China's hit list against Australian agricultural industry sector? Already there's been sort of barley, meat, wine in the firing line. So what is next as these trade tensions show no sign of easing. That's to come just after half past 12 when you get an update from the newsroom and a check-in with the Bureau of Meteorology. It is six past 12, ABC WA. This is the Country Hour. And a livestock export ship carrying 5,800 head of cattle and 43 crew members, including two Australians, is missing in waters off southwestern Japan. The MV Gulf Livestock One was on its way from New Zealand to China when it sent out a distress signal. Japan's Coast Guard and Maritime Self-Defence Force are searching the waters, but strong winds and torrential rain from Typhoon Maysak are hampering the rescue efforts. Authorities have found a lifeboat and one person adrift wearing a life jacket. Mark Harvey Sutton is the... Chief Executive Officer of Australian Livestock Exporters Council. Mark, what is the latest on the rescue effort? Yeah, Belinda, it's uh, at the moment the search and rescue is still underway. Uh, the Japanese Coast Guard is conducting that. Um, we understand that the vessel issued a distress signal early yesterday morning um, and hasn't been able to be located since. Um, and it seems that um, it, it has been caught in the path of a typhoon. Any more detail on the Australians on board this vessel? Because there are sort of different reports that, you know, some reporting there's one Australian, others reporting there are two. What do you know? My understanding is that there are two Australians on, on the vessel. Um, there were crew on the vessel from a range of countries, including Uh, the Philippines, Singapore and New Zealand, but my understanding is there's two Australians on there. All right, and is that that stock handlers? Do you have any more information about those Australians on board? My understanding is that uh, one is a veterinarian, the other is a stock handler. Um, And it's quite common, Belinda, for Australians to apply their trade globally. Um, So uh, it's obviously uh, very concerning for all the families uh, that are involved in this uh, uh, concerning situation. Now, some media outlets are reporting this ship is registered in Panama but operated by a Western Australian exporter. Is that correct? Look, there's, uh, it's quite common for um, exporters globally to charter these vessels. They're, they're global entities, uh, so they operate all over the world. Um, the, I won't name the exporter just out of respect for the, the process that's underway, but a number of exporters based in Australia also have businesses in New Zealand. Um, so there is a, an, an exporter that has an Australian business involved in this. 
All right. Now, my understanding is that this ship, the Gulf Livestock One, was previously known as the Rame, which is the sister ship to the Jarwin, which is the ship back in 2018 that had to unload 4,000 cattle after it failed to safely sail from the port of Portland in southwest Victoria twice in one week. And I'm sure you'll remember the video of this ship just swaying severely from side to side. So basically, this missing ship that we're talking about today is the sister ship of that one going back to 2018. So basically the same build. Are you concerned that it, about those sort of stability problems this ship might have had? Look, it is correct that it is uh, the sister vessel of the Jarwin. It would be improper for me to speculate on, on any of that at the moment. Um, I can say that vessels go through rigorous approval processes uh, both here and in New Zealand. Um, so, look, I, I just think given that the search and rescue is underway um, and people are dealing with uh, the family situations of those affected um, it'd be really improper to speculate on any of that, Belinda. But just it, in terms of the ship, though, a ship with stability issues setting sail in a, a typhoon or even a ship without stability issues setting sail in a typhoon, that's a concern for sure for the entire industry. Oh, look, these are things that are going to have to uh, be investigated. There's going to be a significant process that comes off the back of this. And let's not forget, Belinda, that we're still holding out hope that um, the vessel could be located or some of the crew. So let's work through those things as they come come to light. Um, it's a process that does have to happen. But uh, out of respect for the families, I, I would not be uh, speculating on any of that at this time. Look, absolutely. I mean, it's a developing story. The rescue is still underway and certainly hoping that that rescue is successful in terms of all the personnel on board. But surely your mind goes to the implications of a situation like this for the rest of the industry, even though uh, this vessel sets sail out of New Zealand on its way to China. It's very clear, Belinda, this is, um, if, if our worst fears are realised, this is a maritime uh, tragedy. There's processes to deal with that. Um, indeed, the, the New Zealand authorities will be uh, looking into it as well. Um, so, look, it, it, it is, if our worst fears are realised, an extremely tragic situation and um, it has to be dealt with in, the, in that manner. And I have complete confidence that full processes will be uh, followed, but let's focus on the the situation at hand. There's uh, our thoughts are with the the families right now. How much live trade is done out of New Zealand now, Mark? Is it is it just the dairy heifers? Look, what we're seeing is significant demand for dairy heifers globally. Um, uh, China are importing uh, cattle from as far afield as South America. So it's uh, and indeed the the Australian industry has experienced quite significant growth for dairy heifers too to China. So it's a it's a huge trade and obviously New Zealand is is part of that. So uh, we have seen significant growth. I, I don't have numbers to hand, I apologise, but um, it certainly has grown over the uh, last couple of years and it's been driven by that demand out of China. Obviously over the years New Zealand has certainly cut back on its live export uh, trade and my understanding is it's just the dairy heifers at this point. Do you think, I mean, depending on the outcome of this situation, this could put real pressure 
on even this part of the industry out of New Zealand and possibly end the trade completely? Oh, look, and, and definitely there matters for the New Zealand industry to, to contemplate. Um, look, uh, New Zealand, uh, it's a bit of a fallacy that uh, New Zealand has ceased the live export trade. It, 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 they do continue to export particularly breeding stock. Um, so, look, I'm sure those questions are going to be asked in New Zealand, but uh, that is something that they will have to work through. Um, but the, the, let's re- remember that there are rigorous processes in place and both in Australia and New Zealand, um, and we also have to look ahead to see, um, you know, take the next steps with the uh, follow-through from this, this circumstance. So, um, yeah, no doubt uh, there, that will be a discussion, but let's, let's focus on what's happening right now. Mark Harvey Sutton, good to talk to you on the Country Hour. Thank you. Thank you, Belinda. Wish it was better circumstances. Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton. On the text, uh, bad form, Belinda. Families are grieving, waiting for news of the loved ones, hoping they will be found. You didn't need to name the ship. Uh, That name of the ship has been released uh, right across on a, a range of different media outlets. But just repeating the news that this livestock export ship carrying 5,800 head of cattle and 43 crew members, including two Australians, is still missing in waters of southwestern Japan. Uh, more details on the story, they're online now for you in an online story. To make it easy, the link is on the ABC Rural Facebook page, so just go there and click on. Plenty of comments underneath too. This one from Vanessa. Poor animals. They'd be terrified. God, I pray they're okay. Live export is so wrong. Breed your own meat. But Sally has had her say as well. Show some compassion to all involved. Loved ones are lost at sea in a tragic event. No one can condone the loss of both human and animal lives. People shouldn't focus on the debate of live animal exports. Instead, let's hope for good news on the remaining crew and possible livestock to be found alive. A very sad day indeed. All the details on the story online, just make your way to the ABC Rural Facebook page. The text 0448 922 It's a quarter past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. With harvest just months away, there's been a call for a shake-up on the way wheat varieties are classified. AGIC, which is the Australian Export Grains Innovation Centre, has just released a report which looks at the wheat industry's needs for the next decade. AGIC's Ross Kingswell, Kingwell says Australia's wheat classification system needs to be more flexible and should focus more on what overseas customers need. Some of the trends people are already aware of, such as the competitive threat that has emerged from the Black Sea region. So Russia is now the world's largest exporter of wheat and it has displaced the USA. And over the next decade, it's highly likely that Russia will continue to increase its wheat production and remain a dominant competitor in the markets to which Australia regularly sends its grain. So we have in the last decade 
switched the focus of our wheat exports away from the Middle East towards Asia over the next decade. That's still likely to be the case. That is, Asia will remain the focus of much of our export activity. However, the sorts of wheats that are going to be demanded over the next decade are going to experience some change because we've got slowing population growth in Asia. So their demand for the sorts of wheats that we regularly export, such as noodle wheats and other soft wheat applications, such as cakes and biscuits, is probably only going to grow by about two to three million metric tonnes. Whereas uh, in other parts of the world, such as in northern Africa and in the Middle East, as populations in North Africa and Middle East grow, they will demand more wheat for the feed purposes of wheat, whereas in Asia, the, the growth in demand is going to be more in feed wheat and less so in the traditional noodle market. And, and so it's other markets in Asia that Australia is going to need to look towards markets such as Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam. So what can the Australian wheat industry do to adapt to some of these things that you think are going to change? I think the industry can make sure that the wheat classification system is a very flexible system. We know that the demand for wheat can rapidly turn on and off depending on seasonal conditions. That is our ability to supply different quantities and qualities of wheats can alter. Similarly, uh, markets that import our wheat can alter in size fairly quickly. So we need a flexible classification system that enables us to make sure that the parcels of wheat that we grow find an end user who is prepared wherever possible to pay a premium for those qualities and types of wheat that we grow. So that's the first thing we can do is look at how we classify wheat to make sure that it really is a market-focused classification of wheat. I so, think the second so, Ross, are you calling for a change to Wheat Quality Australia's system? I think like most organisations... Uh, we each need to be subject to constant review to make sure that we are fit for purpose. And I think that's the situation for Wheat Quality Australia. It needs to ensure that the way in which it classifies wheat ensures that wheat growers in Australia gain maximum benefit from that system. So what specifically is not working about that system right now? So one of the challenges for wheat classification is that a main market for Australian wheat is actually the domestic bread market, but the way in which bread is manufactured in Australia is different to how bread is manufactured in some key overseas markets, particularly Asian markets, and therefore the dilemma is how do you classify wheat that may end up in a bread-making process, 
but the actual process of making bread can be different in different markets and therefore the the requirements of the varieties that go into making that bread in the different markets are different. So whatever the classification system that is used by Wheat Quality Australia, it needs to be a market-facing, that is a market-informed classification system at the end of the day, the Australian wheat industry needs to serve its customers and therefore you need your grain to be classified in a way that best suits end-user requirements, even where those end-user requirements may be very, very different because it could be a domestic application versus an overseas application which has different quality requirements. Professor Ross Kingwell, he's from the Australian Export Grains Innovation Centre. 21 past 12. Wheat Quality Australia is the body responsible for classifying wheat grown in Australia. CEO Hugh Robertson claims they are already doing exactly what Professor Kingwell is calling for. What AJIC is calling for, in general terms, is in complete alignment with the way Wheat Quality Australia currently runs the change program to the classification system. AGIC is probably the largest provider of uh, market intelligence into Wheat Quality Australia. So they've done, particularly over the last three years, a number of reports detailing the specific requirements for both noodle and bread markets across Asia. They've also done an equivalent report for Australia. We also have... um, the Classification Council as the reference group, which has representative members from the entire value chain, so breeders, growers, both AGIC and the GRDC, the trade, including domestic users. You know, they meet regularly at least four times a year and then the subcommittees meet more regularly than that. And the most significant item that's on the agenda for those um, meeting groups is to discuss how those reports will translate into changes to the classification system. Okay, well, having said that then, are there any plans to change the way you classify your wheat to be more flexible? There are always plans at various stages to make adjustments to the classification system. Um, We have been looking for a while at how you balance flexibility and efficiency in the classification system because that's why we have classes. So, you know, the most efficient classification system would be just to have one class. And we used to have that. That was called FAQ. And that's clearly the most efficient. There's only one type of of wheat that the trade can just assemble cargoes as a single type of wheat. The problem with that clearly is it doesn't allow capture of greater value streams from higher value classes, which are smaller. The question is, how small do they need to be before it's too small to be a class? So there's always a tension between flexibility and efficiency. So I think that one of the issues that the current system has got is not so much we need to be more flexible because I think that the the number of classes that we've got is probably about right, but I do think we perhaps need to be a bit more agile. In other words, if we need to change the requirements for one of those classes, for example... Uh, Western Australia used to produce a reasonably large amount of soft biscuit and cake wheats and don't produce that anymore. Uh, and that's largely as a result of you know, changing supply and demand structures, meaning that the price was not competitive against hard wheat. I think the view of the market is that that's not true anymore 
And so in the intervening period of about 10 or 15 years, the requirements for that soft class have probably changed because clearly the customer base, particularly in Southeast Asia, has grown massively in the last 15 years. And what they require in comparison to what the traditional export markets of you know, Europe, maybe South Africa, possibly Japan, um, you know, they're different. So the classification system needs to change to be different. Now, I think that at the moment we could be quicker in making those changes than we are, and that's largely a function of the extent to which Wheat Quality Australia uh, needs to consult broadly across the industry before we make any changes. And Kalingri is a good example of that. Now, you released your wheat variety master list this week and you're also um, making a change to Kalingri? So as well as adding new varieties onto the master list, every year we remove old varieties and there's a fairly well-established process for us doing that. There's also those varieties that are still being grown and we check those to see whether they still meet the requirements for that class, which is where Kalingri came from. So it was identified more than five years ago as a variety that didn't meet the requirements for noodle wheat and that the, the primary customer, obviously, for those is Japan and they were not happy with the quality of Kalingri, specifically the colour, but they were concerned that there wasn't anything to replace it. And so that's why there's been a delay with Kalingri being removed from the masters because we waited for uh, newer varieties that could replace Kalingri to prove themselves commercially before we made the decision to take Kalingri off the master list. Wheat Quality Australia CEO Hugh Robertson with Emma Field. Uh, by the way, Kalingari will not be removed as a noodle variety until 2022. And as you just heard, nine new varieties have been added to the wheat variety master list, five milling and four feed wheat varieties. And when you hear about what goes in into sort of making these decisions, there are a lot of organisations involved and that can cause red tape delays. So that's one of the main reasons why Grain Australia has been formed. It officially started operating just this week. Grain Australia will combine all the industry good functions of the industry and some organisations like Wheat Quality Australia will get absorbed into Grain Australia. AGIC Chairman Terry Enright will be the inaugural chair of Grain Australia and Pulse Australia Chair Ron Storey has just been appointed as the new chair of AGIC. Ron Storey has been an AGIC director since 2016. 27 past 12. Plant protection experts are worried about the recent discovery of some capra beetles here in Australia. The capra beetle is from South Asia and is considered one of the 100 worst invasive species in the world. It likes grain products and seeds. So Australia ranks it at number two on our national priority plant pest list. This year, a number of capra beetles have been found on imported door handles and on a new fridge. Robin Cleland is Australia's Chief Plant Protection Officer and she says there's real concern about the pest and that's why Australia has just introduced new import restrictions. Australia is a large exporter of grain and 
Um, if you have CAPRA, that means you've got to do a lot more cleaning, a lot more procedures. You've got to certify that it's free of CAPRA. Um, it, it really does make trade much more difficult. Um, and in addition, it does compromise um, a lot of those grains uh, for food consumption. So once CAPRA's been in there, it's not really something that you want to eat. We have had a number of incursions, which is why the department is worried about it. It survives for a long, long time in all sorts of unusual situations. So we're very concerned that we don't want it in Australia and it could cost us quite a lot of money if it, if it did arrive here. When you say there's been several incursions in Australia, has it ever been found here? It's been found uh, sporadically over a number of years. So um, it is a known hitchhiker pest and it does come in sporadically on commodities. But for those commodities, we do have quite rigorous inspection processes, um, so are likely to find it. But for the containers and these other kinds of goods, it's really quite difficult to identify where there's been some contamination. And in this particular case, we were lucky that uh, a member of the public um, identified that there were some strange things on their fridge um, and that allowed us to start tracing and tracking back uh, all of the other products that had come out of that container and make sure that we've disposed of those things appropriately. You think these two cases were relatively recently and as a result of that you are now making some more changes to import regulations, is that right? Yes, that's correct. This year we've become alarmed around this particular one with fridges. So we're trying to make sure that all possible pathways are being monitored and tightened up on those pathways. So that's where uh, someone's possessions come into the country, are shipped into the country. And we've found that sometimes food products might be associated with those personal effects. So the measures that are being put in place from the 3rd of September will prevent those sorts of things from happening. And will you also be stepping up your monitoring of things like um, fridges coming into the country? So that's a more difficult one, but we have got work underway where we're looking at the containers themselves to try and get a sense of, of how widely that contamination might occur. And that will inform our measures going forwards around the containers because containers travel the world and there's you know hundreds of thousands of millions of them. Chief Plant Protection Officer Dr Robin Cleland talking to Emma Field about the capra beetle which is found in countries in the Middle East, Asia, Africa and Europe and it's sometimes called the cabinet beetle. This is the Country Hour, 29 to 1. Ellie Colvin here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, has become the first frontbencher in five years to be censured in the Senate. The motion, moved by Labor Senator Penny Wong, accused Senator Colbeck of failing to take responsibility for the devastating crisis in the aged care sector. The Department of Foreign Affairs says it's providing consular assistance to the families of two Australians on board a missing cargo ship travelling to China. Japan's Coast Guard says the Gulf Livestock One freighter sent a distress call yesterday while travelling in the East China Sea. The ship was carrying thousands of cattle and had 43 crew, including two Australians, two New Zealanders and 39 Filipinos. A Durian Bay man has faced court in Geraldton accused of shooting dead his neighbour's dog. Douglas Ian Turner is charged with 14 offences, including causing unnecessary harm to an animal and five counts of possessing an unlicensed firearm. The 49-year-old was not required to plead to the charges and had his bail renewed. Thanks, Belinda. More at one. Thank you for that, Ali. 28 to 1. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjima and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA.
As you heard earlier in the hour and you just heard from Ellie in the newsroom, a livestock export ship carrying 5,800 head of cattle and 43 crew members, including two Australians, is missing in waters of southwestern Japan. On the text from John the Farmer... Pets, racehorses and children die in plane crashes and ferry sinkings as they do while crossing roads and being transported along roads. Ban all movement of animals and children or accept that these accidents are a consequence of life, says John. And this from Ralph. If a cruise ship sinks with passengers lost, will the media talk about banning the cruise industry? No. But the good old ABC will relish in the opportunity to diss the live export industry, says Ralph. Please, Ralph. Uh, It's got nothing to do with the ABC. There are some sectors of the community who are against the trade. There are several groups uh, just set up to stop the trade. And there are also some politicians who want the end of the trade. So that is why those questions about the future of the trade are asked. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Between now and the news that won the results of the Mount Barker cattle market, and what could be next on the hit list from China as far as that list of agricultural industries already on the list? It's been barley, wine, meat. Could iron ore possibly? Be next on that list. You'll hear more about those trade tensions between Australia and China shortly here on the Country Hour. First, though, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Gianni Colangelo. Colangelo. Uh, must be Italian there, Gianni. Yeah, that's that's right. I, I, I know that with a name like Varischetti. I got it in one. Uh, welcome. I hear this is your first time doing the cross... Uh, for the Country Hour and giving us an idea of what sort of weather we can expect for the next week. So let's see how we go. Let's start in the Southwest Land Division, Gianni. What can you see? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Belinda. Um, well, what we can see is uh, a fairly stable pattern for today and uh, today, tomorrow and Saturday. We do have some showers uh, along mostly coastal parts. Um, if you were to draw a line between Perth and approximately Bremer Bay, um, we're looking at about one to two millimetres isolated showers in nature getting through those parts of the inland uh, southwest and just touching the Great Southern and uh, up to about four to five mil along the coastal extremities there. That's for both Friday and Saturday. Sunday though we will see a change. We've got uh, a rather um, significant cold front coming through the frontal passage we're expecting to approach the southwest capes themselves during the morning period, um, pushing through the majority of the southwest land division during the middle of the day and the afternoon. Rainfall from that is likely to be uh, obviously a bit higher than the previous days. Uh, we're expecting up to 15 to 30 mil around the uh, coastal parts and the hills, and uh, also expecting around about 5 to 15 mil getting into the Great Southern, depending on where you're looking in that region. Unfortunately, um, those who are listening in the wheat belts are unlikely to see much getting getting past the far southwestern extremity of the uh, of the central wheat belt. There, um, about a, a mill or two through the through the uh, central parts of the central wheat belt. Um, also, I should mention for Sunday uh, concurrently, um, 
Actually, I'll, I'll touch on that when we're talking about the north and the east. Excuse me. Um, so the last thing I'll mention is that once that front goes through for Monday, we're expecting the showers to maintain some rainfall around the uh, southwest and adjacent districts. Um, again, expecting about one or two mil through inland parts, up to three, four, five mil around the coastal parts, and a bit of a bullseye uh, between Cape Lewin and Albany along the coast there, um, upwards of, of 10 mil or so along those parts. Uh, with that, we are expecting the odd isolated uh, thunderstorm, possible uh, small hail with that too. That's great, Johnny. Thank you for that. And now looking into northern and eastern parts of the state, it has been pretty hot in the last couple of weeks or so. Are those sort of conditions continuing? It, it certainly has been and it certainly will. Um, temperatures are reaching up into the low 40s uh, up there in both the western Kimberley and parts of the Pilbara. We are, we are expecting that heat to maintain its strength. Uh, and also drag down through central and southeastern parts of WA, particularly ahead of the frontal system that I mentioned on Sunday. So we're expecting an area um, covering the inland uh, Gascoigne, Goldfields, and all the way down to the Eucla that we're expecting quite, uh, quite swift winds, um, particularly gusty in the Eucla, resulting in hot, dry, relatively unstable uh, and uh, fire weather, uh, dangerous fire weather conditions. So we're expecting issue fire, fire weather warnings for those areas there. And I uh, wouldn't be surprised if you get some blowing dust with those winds um, and dry conditions. And any warnings this afternoon then, Johnny? Uh, we will have the fire weather warning aforementioned uh, for Sunday and Saturday we've got a a uh, severe fire weather warning that we're expecting issue for the uh oh sorry no we've <laughs> i redact that um just the fire weather warning for sunday johnny you've done well it's good to get the first one under your belt thank you thank you belinda <laughs> uh johnny colangiano colangelo i think is the right pronunciation so you'll get used to hearing more from him from the bureau of meteorology this is the country hour time to check the rainfall figures now with richard hudson it's actually pronounced Ricardo, but anyway. Uh, the Up in the north and eastern forecast districts, nothing at five mils or above, but in the southwest land division forecast districts in the central west, Badgingarra, Barberton, Barberton East and Mora all had five mils. Lancelin Defence, six. In the lower west, Glen Eagle and Lancelin East both had five mils. And Carragullen North had six. And then in the southwest, Green Bushes had eight mils over two days and Mount William five. And that's it for the state. Thanks for that, Richard. ABC WA 21 to 1. And shortly, the first of the Vanuatu workers to come over and help out the mango growers, the mango industry in the Northern Territory, have just arrived uh, to, I, I think, going into isolation for a bit anyway so you'll get the latest on that arrival very shortly and of course off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market Tracy Kilner along with the details just before the news at one. First though it seems as if the tit for tat actions between China and Australia in the increasingly strained trade relationship are showing no signs of stopping. On Tuesday night, it was the big WA grain exporter, CBH, being hit with a barley export suspension over claims shipments were contaminated with weeds. On Monday, it was wine producers 
being slapped with their second China investigation in as many weeks over allegations the industry received unfair subsidies. The latest examples add to a growing list of trade disputes and that's got former Australian diplomat and China analyst Peter Phillips worried. He says there are serious consequences at stake unless things calm down soon. I consider it not to be particularly coincidental that very soon after the Prime Minister announced that his government would press for legislation to be passed to empower the government to determine and to cancel agreements and arrangements between organisations in China and organisations in Australia. It doesn't particularly come as a surprise to me that we, not very many days later, heard the announcement from the Chinese side relating to the decision concerning uh, CBH exports of barley. This latest action by China comes hot on the heels of not dissimilar actions, such as the inquiry by China into the subsidies Australian wine producers supposedly receive, which itself followed on from an anti-dumping investigation launched by China. There have been further restrictions on Australian beef exports. Should Australian farmers feel worried about all of this? Do they have a right to feel perhaps targeted? I'm not sure whether we should say that Australian farmers are targeted. I think rather more precisely we should say that in policy terms, part of China's reactions to China's perceptions of stances being adopted by Australia, they are making decisions which are calculated to demonstrate Chinese displeasure to Australia. And of course, one of the unfortunate victims of or one of the unfortunate sufferers from these decisions by China is the Australian agricultural sector. The optics are that these actions are coming thicker and faster and that the strain in the relations between Canberra and Beijing is escalating. Is that really what's happening, do you think? Yes, I think there is escalation and I think that there is demonstration and expression from the Chinese side of their displeasure at what they perceive to be unreasonable actions taken against China or unreasonable criticisms of China. So do you think it's important to look at what actions Australia has taken and been taking as well in all of this? I think it's important to look at the way in which the Australian government is managing its relationship with China. At times when things have been travelling well, all has been serene. At the moment, when things are not travelling well, the Australian government, we are the seller. We are looking for markets. We are constantly looking for markets for our export commodities in particular. China is one of the biggest and at times when uh, our relations with China are under stress, then I suggest that some of our markets in China must be considered to be at risk. Given the seemingly escalating nature of the dispute right now, I mean, is it possible that this could spread into other trades, other commodities, even some of those really fundamental big ones like iron ore? I think we can't dismiss that possibility. One of the things which is known at the moment is that China is continuing to work very closely with Brazil. Brazil, of course, is our best qualified and most threatening, if you like, 
competitor for the Chinese market for high-quality iron ore. China is now working very closely with Brazil to improve shipping conditions, to reduce costs involved in shipping iron ore from Brazil to China. Yes, we should regard our iron ore exports as being under scrutiny by China with a view towards possibly diversifying their sources of supply of iron ore into the future. So we should focus very closely upon this and recognise the dangers from competition and work very hard to continue to strengthen Australia's position in the Australian, in the Chinese market. Peter Rogers, he's a former China analyst at the Office of National Assessments. ABC WA, quarter to one. Well, after a lot of uncertainty and some last-minute negotiations, around 160 seasonal workers from Vanuatu have landed in Darwin as part of a trial program to fill a labour shortage for the Northern Territory's mango harvest. The workers arrived on a chartered flight from Port Villa this morning and will spend the next 14 days at a quarantine facility before heading off to work in various top-end orchards. NT Farmers boss Paul Burke says it's taken a lot of work to reach this point and he hopes more workers will be arriving soon. I think the hardest thing this year is the uncertainty around are we going to be able to get the people to harvest our crops? So a lot of people don't realise that when you're on a farm, uh, and we're a mango farm, we've got probably 20,000 trees in production, our whole income is in a three-week period, three- to four-week period in harvest. So you know, to have uncertainty around are we going to be able to get people to pick it after we've spent all the time growing it and looking after it and irrigating it. Just going to get the right Paul Burke to talk to you. This is the NT Farmers boss. Today's the um, culmination of about four months of really hard and intensive work. Um, we've worked through a process with, in the first instance, Minister Kirby's office here in North, the Northern Territory. At that stage there was no pathway to bring uh, seasonal workers to Australia um, and we were given a fairly firm no that there wouldn't be a pathway um, due to the COVID restrictions. Um, this is the first flight that has arrived that is not repatriating Australian people since March this year to Australia. So it's pretty exciting um, and will pave the way for additional flights to come to Australia to help firstly the mango industry here in the Northern Territory but Australia more generally and we know that New Zealand's looking very closely and wanting to restart their seasonal worker program as well. CEO of the NT Farmers Association. Paul Burke. Mango grower Mitchell Curtis has signed up to take around 30 of the seasonal workers from Vanuatu, but says he's still working 24-7 to find more workers to help with his harvest. He says this period has been extremely stressful. I think the hardest thing this year is the uncertainty around are we going to be able to get the people to harvest our crops. So a lot of people don't realise that when you're on a farm... Uh, and we're a mango farm, we've got probably 20,000 trees in production. Our whole income is in a three-week period, three- to four-week period in harvest. So, you know, to have uncertainty around are we going to be able to get people to pick it after we've spent all the time growing it and looking after it and irrigating it and spraying it and to then worry that are we actually going to get anyone to do it keeps me awake night after night. Mm. So getting 30 from Vanuatu, where are the other 100 coming from? Well, there is a group of um, backpackers that are... In Australia, um, so there's 
some of those are coming and then we've got a, probably about 40 or 50 coming out of Queensland to help with the harvest. On the Vanuatu seasonal pilot program, what do you make of the political argy-bargy that seems to have gone on in Vanuatu and, to be honest, here in Australia? Um, well, there's quite a lot around this issue. Like, it's been very hot, and I, I really don't want to politicise it, but some of the stuff that really cuts into me and keeps me awake at night is just watching the argument around, you know, whether growers are choosing international workers over Australian workers. Like, we, we live three to 4,000 k's away from any major centre. We've actually got to ask people to come three to 4,000 k's out of winter, 16, 17 degrees, come to us in, at 42 degrees it can be at mango season and do all that travel both ways to work for three to four weeks. You know, and we try and try and try and try to get people to come back every year. We constantly are canvassing to get people in Australia to come because it's, I believe it's better. But at the end of the day, we physically cannot get them to come here. So we sit and listen and look at articles where they're saying down south they should ban the backpacker from coming here, well, they're the only ones we've got. They, you know, seasonal workers, international workers, why are we selecting them? Because they're the only people that we can get. Look, it sounds like uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for the mango industry here in the Northern Territory and with harvest fast approaching, you know, you'll soon be off one roller coaster and into another. How are you feeling, you know, now that things are appearing to be coming together after so long and so many variables? For me, it's still, I'm still awake every night. 35 people from Vanuatu is a very small portion of our thing. But a lot of mine are coming from interstate. All we need is the government to shut the border, and then I'm in a major, major, major pickle. So I'm still you know, stressed to the max every night or every day, hoping that the border will stay open yeah. for us to get our workers. So the stress factor is just immense over and above what we usually have. So yeah, it's a hard year. You can hear it in his voice, can't you? Mango grower Mitchell Curtis with John Daly. You can read more on the story online. There is a link on the ABC Rural Facebook page and a few comments underneath from Bev. If our economy is in dire circumstances at the moment, theirs must be absolutely horrendous with no tourism for six months. Hopefully they'll be able to help their families back at home and just remember they're coming from a super small place with no virus we can only hope they are all healthy when they return. And this from Ted. How many people are on job seeker payments? If they won't accept the job, take the payments off them. But on the other hand, a big thank you to the people from Vanuatu. Nine minutes to one here on the Country Hour. And speaking of trying to find workers... Richard Hudson's got some news just ahead. Yeah, the WA government has just launched a new campaign to try to encourage young West Australians to consider having a working holiday right here in regional WA. So it's called the Work and Wander Out Yonder campaign. That's pretty catchy, isn't it? Uh, the obvious reason is industries like agriculture, tourism and hospitality are struggling to find workers at the moment due to no international backpackers from the COVID-19 travel restrictions. So they're going to feature places like Margaret River, Exmouth and Esperance and even the Wheatbelt and target those under 30. And the hook is you can have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to 
you know, see a bit of the state, earn some money, get some experience and, uh, yeah, enjoy things right here in WA. So is this an advertising campaign? It is, yeah. It starts this Sunday and from what I can gather, it's right across the board. So radio, TV, online, print, social media, the works. And the government's working with recruitment company Seek and Studium that we've featured here in the country. The aim is to match employers and job seekers through their campaign website. Again, we've talked about that on the Country Hour. But the government is also in the final stages of developing a regional worker incentive scheme. And from what I can gather, it'll provide accommodation and travel support for people moving to the regions for agricultural work. But uh, after four o'clock, there should be more on this on the Regional Drive Show with Andrew Collins. Great. Thank you for that, Richard. ABC WA 8 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market just before the news at 1. Marshall Bowie is a Western Australian sheep farmer. And recently, he saw something a little bit unusual on his farm at Cogenup, a lamb with five legs and six feet. Uh, yep, so it, it's, it's got a leg growing from its, just, just below its head, near its ear. Uh, it's got a large ball of soft tissue there, which it's growing from, and it's got a leg with an elbow. It has two bones leading to two different feet on the same leg. Wow. Have you ever seen anything like that before? No, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I've, I've once come across uh, lambs with little growths of wool just on, the, on their backs or uh, along their legs, but I've never seen a fifth leg with six feet before. So what do you think has caused it? Do you think it might be a, maybe a conjoined twin or something like that that didn't quite make it all the way through? I'm, I have actually got no idea what would cause something like this. I, I do know that it has happened before. I've had friends tell me and show me photos of, of similar uh, occurrences, but never, never this different and with, with another foot growing from the... Uh, the extra leg. Yeah, and you were telling us as well that it looked like this leg was at least trying to be used by this lamb. Yes, when it was running along, the sheep would throw its head down and put its foot on the ground to try and use it to walk as it was just trotting along. It was it was a little bit humorous and quite interesting that it thought that it needed to use the leg still. Yeah, because it's got four good legs and a, and a bonus one. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was very, very interesting. Yeah, right. And so what's the plan? Is it just going to let it go and see how it gets along? Uh, that was the plan, and then we we brought it back in the yard the other day, and we thought, well, we may as well keep a closer eye on it. So we put it in a smaller pen just next to the sheds, and we're just going to monitor it and feed it and see how it goes. And if it keeps growing, and if the leg doesn't affect it too much, we may leave it on there, or we we may do a, a small amputation and and give it a good healthy life. Yeah, but other than that, it looks like it's going okay. It would be one of the biggest one of the bigger lambs from that mob, which is very interesting. Yeah, right. Fair enough. Um, have you given uh, this lamb a name? We haven't yet. We thought we might put it out to the ABC listeners to see if anyone would like to name it. Cogent up farmer Marshall Bowie. So are uh, many lambs born with extra legs? Dr Shane Bessier is a senior veterinary pathologist at Deepherd and he says it's pretty rare. We get really sporadic reports of it most seasons, but I wouldn't think that most people would bother bother telling us because generally it is one maybe two animals out of thousands um, of lambs at any one time so so it is very rare mm. and w- really we don't have a very good idea why they happen as you mentioned a conjoined twin um, or a twin that's partially resorbed um, but part of it is sort of almost added on really to, to a surviving twin um, is one possibility but 
the other thing that we, we think probably happens is these are sporadic mutations that occur just entirely by chance mm. in the genome as the, after the egg's been fertilised and the, the foetus is developing. It's generally a sporadic chance sort of thing. Um, very few of them are at all suspicious for being linked to any sort of uh, disease in terms of an infection or a poisoning or anything like that. There are some very well-documented cases where um, things happening to the ewe and in, an infection or a poisoning uh, causes what we call a teratogenic effect, an effect on, on the foetus. Um, but generally, they're pretty well characterised. And the other thing is that you get multiples of them in a flock at any one time. You, you might get a crop of lambs, which quite a high percentage um, of lambs have similar changes. And the other uh, reason that we might get these sorts of things is her hereditary problems, so a genetic defect in the lines of, of the animals. And generally, those are also fairly high numbers. Um, you know, we're often looking at sort of between 10 and 25 percent mm. of animals um, that are affected. So, if it had been passed down by, you know, say breeding stock, for example, you'd exactly. likely see it much more often than just once yeah. in a in a flock. And often, repeatedly, as you get, um, you know, the, the same um, lines of sheep um, bred back into each other, um, you know, you may see it year in, year out. And in those sorts of cases, we're very interested in sort of trying to work out the specific numbers involved because that can give us an idea as to what sort of genetic change we might be looking at. Dr Shane Bessier, he's a senior veterinary pathologist at Deep Herd, speaking with Gian DiGiovanni about the five-legged sheep. If you'd like to check it out, there's a photo on the ABC Rural Facebook page for you. And on the Great Southern Morning Show, Gian was asking for name suggestions. One was Pentalam, but I think the best was Hank with this extra shank. Uh, not bad. This is the Country Hour time for the markets. And 468 head of cattle sold at Mount Barker this morning. Tracy Kilner is at the sale yards now. Tracy, I hear it was a pretty good quality yarding and prices picked up on most lines. Store lightweight yearling steers sold to a top of 434 cents, while the lightweight wiener heifers topped at 384 cents a kilo. Heavy cows gained 5 cents, selling to 276 cents, while a heavy bull sold to a high of 278 cents a kilo. An excellent lineup of bullocks weighing over 600 kilos sold for 322 to 328 cents. Grown steers weighing between 500 and 600 kilos made 285 to 344 cents to average 335 cents a kilo while lighter weight sold for 300 cents a kilo. Grown heifers over 540 kilos made 300 cents, while the lighter weight sold for 304 to 310 cents a kilo. The yearling steers weighing over 400 kilos made 358 to 382 cents. Lighter weight sold from 350 to 434 cents to average 402 cents. Yearling heifers gained, returning 286 to 368 cents, averaging 347 cents a kilo. The wiener steers weighing over 330 kilos sold for 400 to 416 cents. Steers weighing between 280 and 330 kilos sold for 418 to 428 cents. And lighter weights made from 420 to 430 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers sold from 300 to 384 cents, with most sales at around 350 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows gained 5 cents on demand, returning 238 to 276 cents. Medium weight cows sold from 240 to 270 cents to remain firm. Boner cows sold for 228 to 240 cents and stores from 222 to 252 cents depending on quality.
Heavy bulls sold for two thirty eight to two seventy eight cents. Medium weight bulls made two sixty two to two ninety eight cents a kilo, while the lightweight bullies sold from three hundred and six to three twenty six cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. And one last option for the five-legged lamb has just come through. Quinton, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.